This program will teach you directly from the Word of God the information you must know to receive God's great gift for you. Join Rob Whitaker as he guides you through this important Bible study so you are able to see the truth will set you free. Hello, my name is Rob Whitaker, and I will be your teacher during this study. Does it matter what you know? The most important question in all the world is where will you go when you die? God has given you all you must know to go to heaven, and God will show you from His Word that it does matter, and the Bible's answers to questions about salvation, sin, and the church. So let's begin considering what is our authority in religion. Our first passage is James chapter 1, verse 21. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Must you look to the word of God to learn how to be saved? Well, the answer is yes, because the implanted word is able to save your soul. You see, in this study, all of our answers will come right from the Bible. There will be no trick questions. I will not give you my opinion. All we want to know is what God's Word says. Our second passage is 1 Peter 1, 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Will your soul be purified before God if you do not obey the truth? Well, the answer is no. Our next verse is 1 Peter 1, 23. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Are you born again through the word of God? Well, the answer is yes. Now, a second question from this verse is, should you go to any other source to learn how to be saved? Well, the answer is no. Since the word of God is how one is born again, then we must not go to any other source to learn how to be saved. Let's read 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, where God says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, there are several questions from these verses. Did God say all Scripture will thoroughly equip you for every good work? Well, the answer is yes. Next, do you need other teachings than the Bible to make us complete before God? 
And the answer is no. Do we need the Book of Mormon or the Quran to make us complete spiritually? Well, the answer is no. You don't need to know anything about the Book of Mormon or have ever seen a Quran to answer this question. Do we need church traditions, manuals, or creed books to make us complete spiritually? Well, the answer is no. Because anything in addition to the Bible is man-made and unnecessary. Now, let's draw a few conclusions before we go to our next section. Is it now your understanding that the Bible is to be our only guide in religious matters? I'm sure you said yes. As you can see, the Bible is our only source for religious authority. It will provide the foundation for everything we must know. No matter your background or understanding, it all comes back to the Bible, the Word of God. Now that you understand the Bible is our only guide in religion, have you ever noticed that it contains two major sections? Do the differences between the Old and New Testament matter? In order to appreciate the importance of this question, consider why in the Old Testament times Israel had to sacrifice animals, keep Saturday as their holy day, and must circumcise their sons, yet today we don't. Let's notice the following references about these Old Testament practices. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, God says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. In Leviticus chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, God says, If a person sins and commits any of these things, which are forbidden to be done by the commandments of the Lord, though he does not know it, yet he is guilty and shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish from the flock, with your valuation as a trespass offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him regarding his ignorance in which he erred and did not know it, and it shall be forgiven him. It is a trespass offering. He has certainly trespassed against the Lord. In addition, have you ever considered why those under the Old Testament were forbidden to eat pork and catfish or rabbit, and yet we may? In Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 7 through 10, God says, Nevertheless, of those that chew the cud or have cloven hooves, you shall not eat, such as these, the camel, the hare, and the rock, the hyrax, for they chew the cud, but do not have cloven hooves. They are unclean for you. Also the swine is unclean for you, because it has cloven hooves yet does not chew the cud. You shall not eat their flesh or touch their dead carcasses. These ye may eat of all that are in the waters. You may eat all that have fins and scales. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. Now that these questions have been asked, let's begin our study together. In Hebrews 9 and 15, God says, and for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the 
first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Did God say Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant? Well, yes. Now, continuing in Hebrews, the ninth chapter, God says, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Now, this verse speaks of a testament. As you might already know, the Bible is divided into two testaments. Have you ever thought of these testaments like your last will and testament? Perhaps you have written a will that would tell your surviving family what to do with your possessions after your death. This will has no power while you live. No one can collect until you die. This is the principle that is being used by God to illustrate the new will or testament of Jesus. Now, according to the passage, when did the New Testament of Jesus go into effect? Well, at his death. Isn't that simple? We understand the Bible testaments just like we understand our own will and testaments. Now, our last verse is Hebrews 8, 6 through 8. God says, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for the second, because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, if the old covenant including the Ten Commandments, had been faultless, would God have replaced it with the New Testament? Well, the answer is obviously no. There would not have been a need for the New Testament if the Old Testament had been all that was needed. Now, you might ask, why did God make a faulty testament? If you look at verse 8, God says the fault was with them, the Israelites, and not the law God wrote. Let's add Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 2 through 3. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, those who are here today, all of us who are alive. Here's our question. Was the Old Testament given for all nations? The answer is no. It was made between God and the nation of Israel only. Now, let's draw a conclusion. Is it now your understanding that the New Testament is a law that is spiritually binding today? Well, the answer is yes. I'm so thankful we live under the New Testament of Jesus Christ. The Bible is so clear about this matter. If we did not know which law we lived under, it could be very confusing. Now that you understand that you live under the New Testament law only, does it matter how you worship God? In John 4, 24, God says, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship 
in spirit and truth. Is it necessary that you worship God in spirit and in truth? Well, the answer is yes. Now, I want to focus on the word truth. In John chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. In John 17, 17, Jesus continued, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now, what is truth? According to John, Jesus said, your word is truth. In John 17, 1, you will find Jesus praying to his Father. So the answer would be the word of God. Now, our next verse is in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them, continued his message until midnight. Now, before we look at this verse with more depth, may I ask you if your employer said you would be paid on the first day of the week, would you understand it? I would dare say that almost everyone would say yes. When would you expect to be paid? Well, every Sunday. What if your boss said, now, I did not say every first day of the week. So are we going to just pay you on some first days, maybe once a month, once a quarter, or annually? I don't believe anyone would accept this answer. Now to our question, did Christians partake of the Lord's Supper on the first day of each week? Obviously, the answer is yes. Now as a follow-up question, should Christians today partake of it on the first day of each week? Well, the answer is yes. Let me add one more thought. How many first days of the week are there in a year? Well, there are 52 weeks, so 52 first days of the week. So how many times should you take the Lord's Supper each year? 52. Let's move to our next verse. It's in Acts 2 and 42. God said, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, this verse takes place right after the church is established. It is considered the first worship service. Since Acts chapter 2, verse 1 identifies this as the day of Pentecost, it is also worthy to note that it takes place on the first day of the week, or Sunday. In Acts 2, in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Will you please God if you continue steadfastly in his teaching? Well, the answer is yes. You see, this was not a one-time occurrence. They did this steadfastly. If you want to be one of those early Christians, then you must continue to do what they did. Our next verse is 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. The Lord says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, 
so you must do also on the first day of the week. Let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Is it God's will that you give as you have been prospered? Well, of course it is. Let's stop and make another application of this passage. Have you ever visited a church and observed the collection? It is practiced in almost all religious groups. A basket or a plate is passed, and people put money in it. Have you ever found one of these groups that did not have a collection? I have never seen it. Why do religious groups take a collection? Well, they do so because the Bible says so. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside. Now, how is it that no one misunderstands the importance of weekly giving? But when it comes to memorializing the death of our Lord through the Lord's Supper, there are so many misunderstandings. Let's observe again, Acts 20, verse 7, upon the first day of the week. It is the same language for the Lord's Supper as for the collection. Isn't it sad that so many will always get it right when it comes to your money, but not in remembering the death of Jesus through the Lord's Supper? Let's turn our attention to Ephesians 5 and 19. The Lord says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. I want to ask a very simple question. Do you see in the Bible that you are to sing when worshiping God? Well, the answer is yes. Now let's look at a concluding thought. Is it your understanding that our worship is not acceptable to God unless it is done as God directed? Once again, I am confident you said yes. Now that you understand that it matters how you worship according to the New Testament, does it matter how the Lord's church is organized? Our first passage to consider is Acts 14, 23. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. Did these inspired men appoint elders in every congregation of the Lord's church? Well, the answer is yes. I want you to notice that every time we speak about elders, it will be in the plural. This is an important point as we consider how the Lord set up those who rule over his church. Our second passage comes from Acts chapter 20 and verse 17 and verse 28. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Then later he said, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Are the elders to be the overseers of the Lord's church? Now, the reason we read verse 17 is to gain the context. Paul called for the elders to come see him. 
when they arrived, he had a message for them. Now, once again, the answer is yes, because elders are overseers to shepherd the local flock. The Bible identifies them as elders and overseers. Both are in the plural. It is quite evident that God did not want one person presiding over a local congregation. Our third passage of consideration comes from Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. God says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I've commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. When Paul told Titus to set things in order, did he tell him to appoint elders? Well, the answer is yes. It is interesting to note that a congregation who does not have elders is lacking or incomplete. Now, this does not mean the congregation is not faithful. For a congregation may not have two or more men qualified to be appointed to this office. It may mean the congregation is not mature or fully formed. Do the terms elders and bishops refer to the same office? Well, yes for Paul used both terms interchangeably in our reading. In verse 5, he called them elders. And in verse 7, he called them bishops. So far, we have seen the terms elders, overseers, and bishops used to describe the same office. Our next reading is a little long. It comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, and not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, well, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the snare or condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, we have several questions to ask. First, must an elder be a man? Well, the answer is yes. This is not a statement of superiority, but of role. Men and women have different roles in the church. As cultures change, many religious groups have changed with them. They accept women in leadership positions in the church. Isn't it sad when people won't accept and follow what the Bible teaches? Second, 
must an elder be married and have children? Well, the answer is yes. Each one of these qualifications also distinguishes the church of the Bible from counterfeits. You see, Satan is the master at deceit. If you want to find the true church, you need to find the one that respects these simple instructions. Third, may an elder be a novice. Now, this means a new Christian. Well, the answer is no. Our next reading is also a bit lengthy. After Paul finished relaying to Timothy the qualifications for elders, he then moves to another office. They're discussed in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers and temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. Do the terms elders and deacons refer to the same office? Well, the answer is no. So you see, an elder is one who shepherds a flock, while a deacon is one who serves under the oversight of the elders. Now, our next verse of study is Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. God says, Who served the copy and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Did God warn Moses to build the tabernacle according to the pattern God gave him? Well, the answer is yes. Those who build houses follow a pattern. Those who make cookies follow patterns. Those who make medicine follow a pattern. Surely if we can understand the need for patterns on earthly things, we can understand the need for following a pattern for heavenly things. Now, our last verse of study is Matthew chapter 15, verse 13. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. If a church is not built according to God's pattern, will it be rooted up? Well, the answer is yes. In summary, you have learned the Bible is our only source in religious matters. You are under the New Testament law. You need to worship God every Sunday through preaching, praying, singing, taking a collection, and observing the Lord's Supper, and that he wants his church to have qualified elders and deacons. As you can see, it's not hard to understand what God wants. Now that you understand that it matters how the Lord's church is organized, according to the New Testament, does it matter by what religious name the Lord's church is called? Let's consider Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourself and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, 
which he purchased with his own blood. Who purchased the Lord's church? Well, Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. Whose name should be on the deed? Well, it should be Jesus. There has never in the history of the world been anything that has had a higher price paid for it. If you bought a house, you would want your name on the deed. If you bought a car, you would want your name on the title. Jesus purchased the church with his own blood, and religious groups placed the name of other people on it. Our next passage is 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 13. God said, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of the Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Is it wrong to call the church after Paul, Apollos, Cephas, or any other human being? Well, I hope you said yes. Would it glorify Jesus to name his church after a religious act? I hope you said no. You see, if you name the church after Paul, you would be glorifying Paul. It is nothing short of profane and irreligious when religious groups put other people or names before Christ. Let's look at Colossians 3 and 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord, Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Are you to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus? Well, yes. Would this include the name his followers are to wear? Well, yes. In fact, what other name would you use? Would you use my name? your name, or perhaps one of the apostles' names. The truth on this subject is so clear. Perhaps no verse is clearer than Romans chapter 16, verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. Do you read of the church of Christ in the Bible? Well, yes. Would it be wrong for the church to wear this name? Well, of course not. Would this name honor the one who died for the church? Absolutely. Our next passage is Acts eleven twenty six, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. What name did the individual disciples call themselves? Well, Christians. Now let's add 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16. The Lord said, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, 
but let him glorify God in this matter. With what name is the individual disciple to glorify God? Well, the answer is Christian. Now, I hope you will never be ashamed to wear the name of the Son of God and his name alone. Let's review what you've learned. You have learned the Bible is our only source in religious matters. You are under the New Testament, the law of Christ. You need to worship God every Sunday through preaching, praying, singing, taking a collection, and observing the Lord's Supper. He wants his church to have qualified elders and deacons. And it does matter what religious name we are called by. As you can see, there are a lot of differences in the religious world. The only way to find the truth is to read and accept what the Bible teaches. Now that you understand that it matters what you believe about the church, does it matter what you believe about sin? Although this is a short study, it is nonetheless very important. Sin is responsible for the downfall of man and woman, going all the way back to the beginning of creation in the Garden of Eden. Our first text is Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How many have sinned? Well, all. It is important to internalize these passages. In essence, this verse teaches that I am a sinner. You are a sinner. We're all under the penalty of sin. Sin is in every nation, culture, and social class. It does not matter if you are a man, a woman, rich or poor, everyone has sinned. Let's look at Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If your sins are not forgiven, will heaven be your eternal home? And the answer is no. This is a serious penalty. Now consider what Jesus said in Matthew 13, 49 through 50. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. At the end of the world will unforgiven sinners be cast into the furnace of fire? Well, the answer is yes. And I know this is a difficult concept to accept. But consider, if God did not punish evildoers, that he would cease to be just. Now, if a convicted criminal came before a judge who refused to sentence him, that judge would no longer be just. We must remember that God is not only all-loving, but he is also perfect in his justice. I want to make sure you understand the gravity of sin and the seriousness of our situation. Let's conclude this section with the following question. Is it now your understanding that God has said, unless you receive forgiveness of your sins, you will spend an eternity in an eternal burning hell? The only answer God has given you is yes. But remember, 
God has also given you a remedy, an answer to the problem and the penalty of your sins. Now that you understand the consequences of sin, does it matter what you believe about salvation? This lesson consists of just three verses, but they are so profound. I really want you to concentrate and meditate on what you're about to read. A good introduction to salvation is found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Wow, these are powerful words. In fact, for some, they may even be frightening. Many people in the religious world believe that as long as you are a good person, a believer in God, you're going to heaven. These words from Jesus say just the opposite. In order to fully realize his teaching, let's ask the following questions. Will all who call upon the name of the Lord be saved? Well, no. In fact, it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. This means that there are people who not only believe in the Lord, but they also confess him that will not be saved. Let's find out more about this group of people. Had these people done many wonderful works in the name of Jesus? Well, yes. And evidently, these believers who confessed the name of the Lord were also doing many wonderful works. Perhaps you never thought about the possibility of these religious people being lost. In fact, this leads us to our next question. Were these believers lost? The answer again is yes. In fact, Jesus said that he did not know them and they were to depart. Now, I know these past two sections have been difficult. Sin and salvation are the most important topics on earth. I am thankful our study does not stop here. You need to learn how you can be certain you will go to heaven. Does it matter what you must do to be saved? There are a few questions I need to ask you. This is probably the most critical part of our entire study. I need you to think carefully and have the courage to be honest with yourself. Our first question, are you saved? At what point were you saved? Now, there had to be a time in your spiritual life when you were lost, and then something happened, so that from that time onward, you knew you were saved. Perhaps it was some sort of religious experience. Perhaps it was during a revival. For example, the marriage ceremony is the point at which a man and a woman become lawfully married. Asking for her hand in marriage, buying an engagement ring, taking blood tests, 
getting a marriage license are all important. But the point at which the couple becomes married is when they go through the marriage ceremony. There was a time when you were not saved and something happened so that you knew you were saved. What was it? It's okay to pause the program if you need more time. This is such an important question that you don't want to rush. In John 3 and 16, God said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The Lord says you must did you say believe in God and his son, Jesus? If so, you are doing well. I want you to notice for each positive step forward, there is also a negative result if you fail to meet the condition. For example, listen to Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 24. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Will you be saved if you do not believe Jesus is the Son of God? Well, no. Now, now you understand that you must believe. We need to read Acts chapter 17, verse 30. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Now you know you must that's right, repent. Repent means being sorry for your past sins and committing to God. You will do your best to obey his words. Now let's read Luke 13, 3. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Will you be saved if you do not repent? And the answer is no. Let's consider Romans chapter 10, verse 10. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now you know you must, if you said confess, you're right. Now Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, therefore whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whosoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Will you be saved if you do not confess Jesus? Well, no. And now that you know what you need to confess, you don't need to confess your sins. Your sins are between you and God. See, in order to be saved, you must be willing to confess in your heart and to others that Jesus is the Son of God. Now you know three of the steps required to be saved. Believe, repent, and confess. In 1 Peter chapter 3, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now you know you must be. 
If you said baptized, you are correct. Let's notice that baptism is not a bath to clean the flesh, but it has another purpose that is made possible by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, in John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say unto you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Will you enter the kingdom of God if you are not baptized? Well, the answer is no. Consider what Jesus said in Mark chapter 16, verse 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Jesus said you must believe and be baptized to be saved. Let me illustrate this verse. Let's remove the words believe and baptism and insert something we all love, food. He who eats and digests shall live, but he who does not eat shall die. Pretty simple, isn't it? Now, will you live if you don't eat and digest? Well, the answer is no. Will you be saved if you do not believe and be baptized? The answer is no. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What did Peter say you must do? Repent and be baptized. Now, what is baptism for? For the forgiveness of sin. Repentance and baptism are connected by a simple word, and. This is a coordinating conjunction, which means it links repentance and baptism and gives them equal weight. Both repentance and baptism are required. You can't receive the remission of your sins if you leave repentance out. You can't receive the remission of your sins if you leave baptism out. Perhaps you're considering your baptism. Maybe you have had multiple baptisms. How do I know which one is right or if any of them have been right? Let's read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Is there more than one valid baptism in God's will? Well, the answer is no. You see, God has settled the matter. When it comes to baptism, there's only one that is acceptable to God. Let's be sure you are baptized the way God commands. In Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 3, the Bible says, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Are all spiritual blessings in Christ? Well, the answer is yes. Now, if all spiritual blessings are in Christ, are there any spiritual blessings outside of Christ? Well, the answer is no. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Now, you may not know the answer, and 
if this is the case, it's okay. Is it your understanding one must be in Christ to be saved? How does one get into Christ according to the Bible? Let's read Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Is baptism the way to get into Christ? Well, yes. In fact, this is exactly what the verse says. Now, before you move any further, let's create a picture of what you have learned. First, let's draw a circle and identify it as Christ. Everything inside of the circle is inside of Christ. Now, you previously read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, and learned that all spiritual blessings are in Christ. Look at your circle. Let's put all spiritual blessings inside. Now, you could fill this circle with so many of these blessings, like eternal life, 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, salvation, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10, grace, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, and forgiveness of sins, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 7. I guess you can see how important it is to be in Christ. Next, draw an arrow from the outside of the circle to the inside. This will represent how you come into Christ. Now, you just read Galatians chapter 3 verse 27 and discovered that baptism is how one gets into Christ. In Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, there is a powerful picture of what this looks like. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, before we ask our questions, consider the picture Paul has painted. It might be said that no picture is more beautiful and powerful than the one you just read. It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It is the centerpiece of Christianity. In these verses, Paul is teaching us how to obey the truth, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. You see, in baptism, one is buried into Christ. In baptism, one is resurrected with Christ. It is essential that you understand how these are linked together. Baptism is how you experience the gospel. There is one more point to consider from these verses. God only buries the dead. A person who has sinned is spiritually dead and lost. Therefore, a burial takes place, and one is immersed into water and resurrected to become new life and saved. Have you ever buried a pet? Now, surely you would never bury it alive. And when it does die, you would never just sprinkle a little dirt on top. A burial requires a person to be dead, in sin or lost, 
and completely immersed into water in order to rise in new life and be saved. Now, let's ask a series of questions designed to help us walk through these verses and to make sure you have obeyed them. Does the Bible describe the one baptism as a burial in water? Well, the answer is yes. It says that you are buried by baptism into his death. Where do you get the benefits of the death of Jesus? Well, it's baptism. According to Paul, baptism is how you are buried into Christ. Where do you come into contact with the blood of Jesus? Once again, the answer is baptism. You see, the blood of Christ is found in his death. Baptism is how you are buried into Christ. There are many baptisms made by man, but only one made by God. If you were baptized the way the Bible says, would you be wrong? Well, certainly not. But if you are not baptized the way the Bible says, could you be wrong? Well, the answer must be yes. Now, this is a powerful point. Remember, you learned previously, there is only one valid baptism. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5. What happens if you were not baptized the way the Bible says? May I suggest if you were not baptized correctly, then you are not baptized at all? Do you want to take a chance on missing heaven? I'm sure your answer is no. Do you believe Jesus Christ is a son of God? I'm sure you will say yes. As you have seen, Jesus commands repentance. Are you willing to start making the changes in your life that Jesus commands and live for God? Now is the time to stop and think about your life. And if you are willing to cease from a life of sin and turn to God for forgiveness. Salvation requires repentance. Will you do it now? Yes, the Lord wants you in his kingdom. Have you been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins? Perhaps you said no, because you have never been baptized. Perhaps you can't remember and have not answered. Maybe you said yes, because you have learned in this lesson that baptism is for the remission of sins. This is a very critical time in your study. Let me clarify. I am not asking why you were baptized according to what you have learned in this study. I'm asking why you were baptized at the time it took place. This might be difficult, a difficult question to answer. So let me help you walk through it. If you were taught you had remission of sins before baptism, could you have been baptized for the remission of your sins? Well, the answer is no. In other words, if you were never taught about the purpose of baptism, you could not have been baptized according to its purpose. People are baptized for a variety of reasons. Some are baptized to join a denomination. Some are baptized because everyone else is doing it, so they join in. Others are baptized as an outward sign that they have already had their sins forgiven. If you are not taught baptism is in order to receive the remission of sins, you could not be baptized to receive the remission of sins. 
If you were taught you were saved before baptism, could you have been baptized to be saved? Well, the answer is no. If you are unsure, consider the following common sense approach. Is it possible to be taught the wrong thing about baptism and obey the right thing? The answer is obviously no. Baptism is not an accident. You cannot accidentally be baptized. You must know what you are doing. May I suggest that if you did not know you were lost before baptism and that the purpose of your baptism was to have your sins forgiven, then you were not baptized according to the one baptism you have learned about in the Bible. Let's consider one more question about baptism before you conclude. Since God describes the one baptism as a burial in water, could you have been scripturally baptized if water was sprinkled or poured on you? Well, the answer is no. Since baptism is a burial, it would require an immersion, briefly being placed under the water. When someone is buried in Christ, it requires them to die. When something dies, it must be buried. Now, let me ask, when your pet dies, do you bury it or do you sprinkle some dirt on it? In baptism, you must be buried and not sprinkled. You must be immersed in water. It is important that we go back to those questions that we asked earlier about what must you do to be saved? How did you answer? Compare what you have learned now to how you answered those questions then. There's a reason why we ask those questions before the study. It is because the Lord wanted an honest answer. Sometimes we have a tendency to change our answers as we learn the truth. In order to be right with God, we must be honest with ourselves. If you answered that you were saved before your baptism, then you could not have been baptized to be saved. If you were baptized by sprinkling or pouring, then you could not have been baptized by being buried into Christ. Now it's time to make an application. Consider what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. I know it is a short verse, but it is so powerful and personal. If you really love Jesus, will you want to obey him? I know the Lord wants you to answer yes. Do you love Jesus? Yes, or at least I sure hope that's your answer. Now, do you want to obey God? You see, the Lord wants you to say yes. Now, since Jesus wants you to be baptized, and now that you understand the importance of being baptized right now, wouldn't it please Jesus for you to be baptized right now? You may believe and may even say you are saved, but it only matters what God, our Heavenly Father, says you must do to be saved. Now, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, the Lord warns us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We must know the truth that obedience to the teachings of Jesus is the only thing that will save us. Only Jesus will add you to his church. Are you in his church? Do you believe you are saved? If you were to die this very day, would you go to heaven? 
would you be lost? Maybe you are not sure. Would you like to be sure? You see, God has told us everything that we must know and must do to be saved. Now, having completed your study with the Lord, what are the things you have learned? Let's review what God has revealed. Only the words of God can teach us how to go to heaven. The Bible is in two parts, and the New Testament is the part that God will judge you by. God expects you to worship only Him in truth and spirit on the first day of each week. God expects you to honor His Son and His sacrifice on the first day of the week. Jesus wants His church to be overseen by qualified elders over each congregation of His church. Jesus wants His church to only be named after Him, for He bought it with His life. The good news is that God has said that he loves you, and by his grace, he has made a way for you to be in the kingdom of his son. By his grace, he has provided a way for you to escape Satan, the evil one, and his punishment. Does it matter what you must do? Well, first, you must believe in God and his son, Jesus. If not, you will do nothing. You must be willing to repent of your sins. Without turning away from your sins, you cannot be saved. You must be willing to tell others that you believe Jesus is the Son of God and your Lord and Savior. Next, you must be baptized for the washing away of your sins so the Lord can add you to His church. Last, you must put God first in your life. Worship Him on the first day of each week and do your very best to live and do all that you can for Jesus. Does it matter what you do now? If you need help in finding the Lord's church and or someone to help you in being baptized, or if you have any questions regarding what you have just learned, please contact the person or congregation who referred you to this video. If you need help, you can submit your email questions to help at wvbs.org.